0: Welcome to the Go To Thrive Podcast, the place to inspire people in the workplace and go to thrive. Mary Jane Roy and Vivian Aqua want to make happiness the new norm and offer solutions to create higher engagement in the workplace.
1: Our Go To Thrive Podcast guest today is Rex Miller. Rex is a futurist, consultant, speaker, and communications expert. When your organization needs to move its culture needle to better adapt and innovate, Rex is someone to turn to. He co-wrote the book, The Healthy Workplace Nudge. Welcome, Rex. Thank you.
2: Yes, and thank you so much. Rex, tell our audience something about who you are. Um, Include something they won't find on your LinkedIn profile and as well as something about why you're doing what you're doing.
0: Uh, so a little bit back background. I'm, uh, I grew up in the sixties and seventies. So I'm a, I'm a classic rock fan. So that's not on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm also a certified tennis professional, USPTA. And in the last two years, I've picked up my game again to try to get back and become competitive at age 65. So, um, I'm working wow. towards that. Yeah. And this journey that we've been on has transformed my life because we really dug into, well, part of it is life transition and seeing our parents where they're at health-wise. The other part, too, is seeing where my generation is and their health and the stress they're taking on in the workplace. So this became a personal project as long, as well as research Um The kind of work that we do falls into five buckets. Uh, The first is called foresight. So that's that futurist side. And our goal is to help organizations not just become really good at what they do, but see the ecosystem they live within, the drivers and the constraints, and be able to address that to improve the their clients' overall experience, not just the single thing that they provide. So we do that through what we call thought leadership. So the book you referenced is one of the products that we do. It's the fifth product that we've created as a result of the research helping uh, groups of leaders become thought leaders to their industry segment. The second part of it is systems. We address systems. And what we particularly look at are wicked problems. Um, those are systems that have been stuck for decades. For example, uh why do capital projects continue to come in late and over budget? 70%. Uh, The second one was disengagement. So we tackled that in another book. The third was public education in the United States. Why has that been stuck and why are the test scores remaining static and more and more kids are not graduating happy and healthy? Uh, The next one was the healthy workplace nudge. And then we just submitted a, a manuscript for kind of that next conversation in education around stress, trauma and burnout. Uh so those those are areas we we get into. So that's the system, but then the next side of it is the culture. Once you address the system and look at how do we shift the system, then you're you're dealing with legacy cultures uh and we have a very unique approach to culture. We look at culture in four categories, the aspired culture which is what most people refer to culture as, their mission, vision, values, or what they look like on their best day. Uh, The second is what we call legacy culture, the culture that brought you to this point but won't take you forward. The third part is what we call the future culture, those people inside the organization that already are behaving and into the future but are, are marginal people in the organization. But the last and most important is what we call the shadow culture. That is the boss. And so the shadow culture is the one that most organizations never address and don't even know how to surface it. So we have a unique approach to helping them address that because that is the real constraint to change. And then, of course, after we deal with culture, we deal with people and and. And the skills and training they need. And then the last part are the projects, the things that people do collectively together. So that those are kind of the, the buckets that we deal with. Um, if I shorten it to a headline, uh, what we basically do is provide adult supervision to leaders who can't get along. That's, that's kind of wow.
1: What that's a very catchy headline. <laughs> I especially <laughs> love the shadow culture Yes. Cause she does that so yeah. uh, well. Why, how did you come up with that name? Because that's the untouchable part of the company culture, which a lot of people have a hard time to address, even to see it, even.
0: Well, so I worked, I was a senior partner for a consulting firm in Washington, D.C., and the founders and the senior principals were all Jungian psychologists. So we would go into an organization, and I learned that what we don't see is more important than what we do see. Uh, and so when you get into this the system, so systems tend to be invisible to most people. They're they're hard to see all the interconnected parts. With that comes a culture part of it. And what we saw the challenge and the resistance to change is what was happening is this shadow culture, which are the invisible attitudes habits, values, and behaviors that run the place when you're not there. Mm-hmm. Uh so we have a really uh, a very popular TV show in the United States called Hell's Kitchen. And there's an individual by the name of Chef Ramsay.
1: We know him. <laughs>
0: okay. So if you want to look at what the difference is, you you see when Chef Ramsay is in the dining room, he's smoozing and everybody's happy and everything looks perfect on the exterior. But when he goes back in the kitchen, it's hell. Yes, <laughs> hell. So the challenge that leaders have is that when they show up, uh, they never see the shadow culture because it it changes the people's behavior. The boss is here. Everybody goes into what they call boss behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another TV show in the United States that's a real good illustration called undercover boss mm-hmm. yeah. where, where the boss goes to the front lines and he's nobody knows who he is they don't know what he looks like and he begins to see what the real culture is like we have a process that helps you see that because that is the very um that determines the success or failure of the change and we've labeled it the right brain side or the emotional side of change uh, all all the change management processes that you see out there do a really good job of what we call the left brain side you know, what is the burning platform, the clear and compelling vision, the champions, uh, the easy first steps, uh, you know, quick wins, all of that is all left brain. But the emotional side is what we call the perceived cost of change. What am I losing in this? Am I losing a feeling of confidence? Am I losing my close relationships? Am I losing my status in this new change? and um and Dr. Roysen gave us another in the book Healthy Workplace Nudge that unless people can see what they call the empathetic future unless they can place themselves in that future and see themselves successful, then they won't change so that's what we deal with it's it's different um there's a lot of organizations that do a great side, the great part in the communication
1: strategies and all that, but we really dig into shadow culture
0: do you right. have
1: a do you, do you have a favorite quote, and why does this resonate with you?
0: Yeah, A favorite quote. So for me, um, I have an opening quote when I give a presentation that my image of what we should strive for in wellness is that you and I can bring our whole self to work, do our best work during the day, and go home happier and healthier. However, in the United States, the bar for wellness success is really low. Uh, it's around participation. And if wellness programs are getting higher than 15% participation, they think that's a success. And the bar is even lower because all you have to do for participation to be counted in the wellness statistics is do a health risk assessment, uh, show up to a health fair, whatever it is. It's such a low bar. And then it gets even lower when you look at in the United States that of that 15 percent, a full two-thirds or 10 percent would do it anyway. They're like me. We are healthy. We take advantage of it. So wellness programs in the United States have a low bar. They're only affecting about 5 percent of the employee base, and you're spending all that money to get such a little bit of return. So my quote is, we should strive for uh, bringing our whole self to work, doing our best work, going home at the end of the day, happier and healthier. That should be our benchmark. Wonderful. Okay. Thank
2: you. Yeah. I do, too. Yeah, that—that that, that is even more shocking than what I've heard over the last three days at the WALCOA Summit that I've attended in uh, Philadelphia. Well, that's uh, because you're
0: wellness cheerleaders.
2: <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Rex, can you explain for the audience, first off, what is a nudge, as used in the definition or as used in the title of your book, eh? The Healthy Workplace Nudge?
0: Yeah, so that borrows from Richard Thaler's book called Nudge. He is a behavioral economist, and uh, he he is a protege of uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. So these individuals back in the 60s began seeing that the rational decision-making framework that we use to evaluate how people are going to make decisions called economics. You know, economics is the study of how people make risk reward decisions. The traditional model looked at humans as rational decision makers. Uh, Homo economicus is the term. They began seeing that people were making decisions that were counter to what rational, you know, if you gave them rational choices so they began looking at the psychology behind it and finding that uh, because of our human brains and survival and and uh, and how many calories the brain takes, you know, the brain uses 25 percent of your calories per day. It's the most calorie consuming organ in the body because of that. It conserves calories. So it only uses its full brain power for survival or things that are really important. Uh, so they estimate uh, in the book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, that's Daniel Kahneman's book, that about 20% of our brain power is for that high focus attention and 80% is in default mode. So you can imagine being in default mode, uh, going out to dinner with some friends of yours, but thinking, you know, I've been out to dinner a couple times in the last week. I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to eat light Caesar salad little light protein, no croutons, one glass of wine, and then you kind of get lost in the conversation and it's enjoyable. Uh, You're not keeping track of how many times the waiter has filled your wine glass. (laughs) And then at the end of the meal, the waiter comes up. And what does the waiter ask everybody at the end of the meal? You want dessert. Right. But you're not going to say a word because you're going to be good. But your best friend says, Oh, I'm going to order the chocolate molten cake. It's to die for and we're going to get some ice cream. And then she looks up and says, make sure you bring five spoons. And that's to share the guilt. Uh, you were just nudged because you were, your brain was in default mode. You were going with the flow. It wasn't life or death. That is the, the biology and the psychology of a nudge. So what Richard Thaler found is that we might be able to apply this to help people make better decisions. And in the United States, he applied it to retirement funds called 401ks. And at the time he applied it, and this was a policy thing, uh, the participation in the United States was about 30%. And it was because the decision was I had to choose when I hired with a company, I had to choose to pick a retirement plan. What he did is he said, let's change it to a simple nudge. And the nudge is instead of choosing to opt in to, to choose a plan, we're going to shift that, that you have to opt out. And by opting out, he immediately shifted the participation level to over 70%. So our research said, wow, I wonder if we could use that in physical design. I wonder if we could find ways. Now, so, He won the Nobel Prize for Economics for how powerful this was, and it's now being used in public policy. Nudges are being used in lots of different ways to help behavior in public policy. But we looked at it from a design standpoint, and it's called change architecture. So change architecture requires a choice between two things, and what you do is you just kind of put – Put the scale and you make the the choice that you want, the easier choice, and you make the choice that you don't want a little more difficult. So for example, water may be the default beverage. Uh, we've heard of some places putting uh, a, a five second delay on the elevators, but making the stairs really attractive to go down. Uh, Google in their micro kitchens has refrigerators that if you look at them, the top half of the glass, is clear glass. And you see uh, Fiji water, coconut water, kombucha, all of what I call the California drinks. And then at the very bottom, it's frosted glass. So number one, you have to bend down to get it. Number two, it's not as clear. And you see these opaque outlines of a red can and a green can. And a... So they, they apply nudges to now, they don't take away choice, so that's an important part of the nudge. Uh, they also did an experiment with M&Ms, which you may have read in the book, where they did a simple nudge of uh, in their New York office of putting M&Ms in an opaque jar ver- and put some healthier nudges in clear jars, all in the same line at eye level. And what they found over three months is over 3 million M&Ms fewer Three million fewer M&Ms were consumed, which equates to about 850 pounds of weight on a person. So we, we've been applying these uh, all, all over. And we have a worksheet that will provide anybody for free, two worksheets. One is how do you conduct a nudge audit in your workplace? And that's helping people become more aware of the healthy nudges, like the bowl of candy at the reception station is an unhealthy nudge. Or the food that you serve in a meeting can be either a healthy or unhealthy nudge. But we, we create both a happiness and stress nudge audit, and we create a physical audit, and the symbol is a, either an apple or a donut. Uh, and so we want people to go in because that's low-hanging fruit that's easy to change. It's very inexpensive.
2: Yeah, fascinating. I mean, this is all just because of of the way our brains are working and and that we can play into this. Thank you, Rex, for sharing that. I think this is going to be a a good illustration for, for the listeners.
1: And I'm also curious about what was the most shocking thing and the most uplifting thing you heard about workplace wellness when doing the interview for interviewing so much leaders and experts for your book, The Healthy Workplace Lunch.
0: Well, two shocking things. One was we assume that wellness programs work. And because we were coming out of the built environment, our concern was we're talking about how companies can improve their wellness programs, but really didn't understand wellness. So that was the research. So the first shocking thing is that uh, if you just look at the numbers alone, wellness programs by and large do not work. Ninety five percent of wellness programs are a waste of money. Uh, the second shock was uh, we're on an existential uh, curve. Chronic disease is rising at about a seven percent uh, compounded rate per year. In the United States, 50% of our population has some form of chronic disease. 70% of people are overweight or obese, which then leads to metabolic syndrome, which leads to chronic disease. And it's happening younger. 40% of college graduates are graduating overweight or obese. So instead of the problem being, you know, it used to be that late, you know, in your 50s and 60s, you begin to experience that and it's manageable. Now people in their 30s, 20s and 30s, and companies have, you know, a 30-year, 40-year trajectory of managing this. But even more to the point, 80% of our health care costs in the United States are because of chronic disease. And if it's rising, and so that's 18% of our gross domestic product is health costs. So if you take 7% compounded over 10 years, that, that just about doubles. So what Dr. Roizen is saying that unless we begin to cap that cost rise, then companies will no longer be able to afford health costs, more of the burden on the population, more of the burden on the country. We're basically moving to an existential cliff over the next 10 years if companies don't begin addressing that. Uh, so we call that the oh my God factor. Um, and in all of our different research projects, we we hit what we call this oh oh my god factor, things that were so shocking and surprising to us that if they were true, um uh, then that should be a headline every day that we should be talking about and addressing shocking. Yeah. yeah. It is shocking. Yeah. And and all the Western countries are and and even the Asian countries are catching up with us. China's catching up with us, India's catching up with us, but all the Western European countries are having the same challenges.
2: Uh Rex, what makes for a toxic work environment, both physically and emotionally?
0: Well, there there's several factors. Uh the environmental factor, um, and we're starting to experience this, is that the distractions, uh digital distractions, noise distractions, those create stress. So if you think of all these stressors, that stress is cumulative. It, it, it builds up over the day. And without some form of releasing that, uh, what it does is it eventually shuts down your prefrontal cortex. So you can't do quality work and you get anxious and you take that anxiousness home. Uh, there are several things we can do to a, a, address that and alleviate some of that stress. And some of it has to do with creating environments that just make sense. Uh, easy to navigate, uh, providing the right kinds of spaces so people can get that quiet, heads down time they need or cut out the distraction, giving user control, uh, being able to do sit to stand, uh, being able to decide where I want to do my work, when I can do my work and who I want to do my work with. So that's a huge environmental part. Uh, the two other parts are cultural, um uh, and, uh, you know, a toxic boss, uh, we talk about in the book that it really doesn't matter how many steps you take or how well you eat. If you have a bad relationship with your boss, it's still killing you. You know, work is the fifth leading cause of death. Uh, heart attacks go up 20% on Mondays. And a lot of that has to do with the person you work for directly. And that those are Gallup research studies. Uh, and then the culture—you know—is it a dog-eat-dog culture? Is it a cooperative culture? Uh, all of those things create either healthy or toxic environments.
2: So it, even even more uh, horrible, shocking statistics uh, in this last answer, uh, supporting why why a healthy work environment is so needed, uh, and and just how important uh, yeah someone's boss is the to uh, to their well-being to their health and well-being right. and uh yeah thanks Rex for that
1: and it's also an interesting fact all these these uh figures that you you just shared uh besides that there is also a war for talent going which makes it challenging for companies to uh be stay competitive be competitive right right, right.
0: well and the achilles heel for organizations is at mid management level uh mid managers uh, the Whitehall study, uh, shows that the mid-management level, uh, absorbs most of the stress of the organization. So they absorb its stress from the front line, who they, who reports to them, and then from, from there. But also Gallup's research shows that 80% of managers should not be managers because of the way they're wired. So that, you know, we do a lot of work with trying to figure out, do you have the right people in place? Gallup says 10% of people are naturally wired to be good or great managers, and 20% can be trained to be good managers. Um, So that's another level, too, is, you know, people get promoted into management for a lot of the wrong reasons, and that's another part of the stressor inside organizations is they just have people in over their heads or just don't know how to do it. Mm
1: -hmm. What is one easy step an organization can do with existing space to enhance the well-being of its employees?
0: First of all, the easy one is the nudge audit. Uh, They can begin looking at the nudge audit and looking at areas that uh, incentivize, you know, does it incentivize moving, food choices, uh, getting sunlight. So the environment, that's an easy way to look at that. The other is looking at like the well-building standard or fit well as a framework, what kind of lighting do you have? And then your normal lighting maintenance, can we start changing this out to more uh, daylight level lighting or circadian lighting, uh, looking at your air handling systems and what is the level of CO2 in that temperature. So those are easy things to do that we tend to neglect. Um, the other part, the biggest part is handling the distraction noise issue and really taking a serious look. Do we have the right ratio of areas where people can get breakout space or small conferencing? Um, those are those are two easy, low-hanging fruit things to do.
2: Rex, I, I just want to mention this. Because, uh, where can people get the the uh, nudge audit? Will you give your that URL yeah, so, to us?
1: We can put it on our website along yeah, so with the podcast. refer them to you to your site so that they can. Yeah,
0: uh, I can provide you with the PDF. But the other way is you can reach me on LinkedIn. It's mm-hmm. easy to reach me there. Or you can go to my website or send me an email at rex at com, mm-hmm. and just ask for the Nudge Audit and you'll get two PDFs for the Nudge Audit plus instructions.
1: Cool.
2: Okay, and then I want to follow up on one of the last things you just said, because it was our next question, actually, about open workspaces. Why have they failed, and when can they succeed? Because I'm hearing when the work I do in corporate is uh, people are going home exhausted because of these open, uh, flexible workplaces, and obviously this is not working for everyone. It's not. Maybe and- for no one.
0: <laughs> well, actually, they work extremely well when they're done well and done for the right reasons. Like the CBRE facility is a joy to work in.
2: This Several, is the LA, the LA office that you referring
0: the LA, to? The LA headquarters. Uh, you know, the, the GoDaddy Go facility in Tempe organization, uh, we had our summit there and we were photo bombed, uh, by one of the employees was who was there on their day off, and we asked him, uh, his name was Tommy, and we said, what are you doing here? And he said, dude, wouldn't you like to work in a place like this? This is a great place. And it is. Uh, the Next Jump facility in New York. So there's lots of really great places. The Hayworth headquarters is an incredible place to work and hang out. But uh, what you have to do is decide a couple things when you're going open plan. First of all, you've got to get the acoustics right. Mm-hmm. Uh, most do not put enough time and effort in designing the right acoustical balance in the environment. Uh, the second thing is you've got to really understand the nature of the work. So first of all, open plan needs to support your business model and business strategy. Uh, so you have to understand what you're trying to accomplish. Number two, it has to support the culture or you have to, adjust or adapt the culture like CBRE did uh to understand how to work in the environment because it's a different behavior set and it's a different different culture set uh, number number 3 you've got to have uh good execution and good design and you've got to take care and accommodate the different kinds of work styles so most of the problems we see one size fits all uh not enough uh breakout space uh, heads down space um uh, and they didn't consider whether it fit the culture and they didn't do any culture adjustment or training. Uh, and there was little, very little stakeholder engagement in the process. So the, the projects that we see where the stakeholders are part of the solution, you know, on the front end, instead of having, uh, in the book, change your space, change your culture, we write a chapter called from push to pull. Mm-hmm. And that's from expert design experts coming in and saying, let us figure out what you need. And then we'll go back in our secret cave and make the solution come out and say, ta-da, here's the great solution. You'll love it. It, It's now going from what we call the ta-da experience to the aha, where instead of being the hero, where the architect is the hero or the workplace strategist is the hero coming up with the solutions, they become the guide. They help guide the group and the organization through a diverse stakeholder process to figure out what solution works best for us.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted you. to add, add to what you're saying. And I think you mentioned it, but I also see a lot of, uh, things going wrong in open workspaces is that they don't have guidelines. And if they do have guidelines, they don't share it with the new employees that joined the company. Whereas you have one employer calling, shouting, uh, singing in an open workspace while the other, while his or her colleagues are busy working and become distracted at that moment.
0: Absolutely. Well, again, that's, uh, uh, that's enculturating people. There's a culture around open plan. Okay. Yeah. So that's the attitudes, habits, values and behaviors. It's a different environment, which creates different behaviors. It's a habitat. And so how do you behave in this habitat and thrive as, you know, animals in the habitat? I worked with one uh, organization. It was a water treatment facility that had a culture around accountability, and it was very much of a a chain of accountability. You had engineering, project management, construction. You had all these different areas. They had private offices, and then they were going to throw them into this open plan And what it felt like is going from, I do my job. Now people are going to be watching over my shoulder what I do. And so they had an accountability culture and they had to learn, they had to train them in how do we become a, go from an accountability culture to a collaborative culture. So that's part of the process. What's the culture in this environment and what's the culture here and how do we take that journey into that new behavior set? That's without sorry, Rex. Go ahead. Well, I'm gonna say that's more important than the design is what is what is the current culture norm, the shadow culture, and what's going to be the new culture norm and make that transition before you do the design.
2: And and what I was gonna add in that was without it becoming a, a, a what do we call it, a straitjacket, uh you don't want the environment to kill the, the innate personality of 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 the group, uh, the, the, of the individuals in the group. So yes. yeah, I, it, and where does somebody go? Where would an organization go who has an open space? Where would they go to find this information?
0: Well, uh, I've wrote a book called "Change Your Space, Change Your Culture."
2: <laughs>
1: okay, all right, thank you. But, yeah, I'm going but... into that one. But they, then you said that again, Mary Jane, knew you, you're. Uh, we lost you. Uh,
2: yeah. No, I was just. I said I'm going to be reading
1: that one. Definitely.
0: Yeah, you'll like it. But there are gr- really good organizations that understand this. You know, some of some of the companies we've met through our network. So we had over a hundred organizations and leaders involved in the research, and so we we find people that quote get it. Uh, there's an architectural firm in Cincinnati, BDHP, that gets it. Uh, Fox Architects in Washington, D.C. gets it. Uh, Mm uh, a specialty engineering firm in Dallas, Texas, gets it. So there are people who get it. There are also very useful assessment tools that help you benchmark, like the Leesman assessment. It's a, it's a great, you know, it's known, uh, there's a, another assessment tool that Hayworth has called competing values that helps you understand the dominant culture and the different subcultures. And then you can look at, do those cultures align with the strategy? Uh, and part of the challenge organizations have is they set a new strategy. But when you set a new strategy, that's a domino chain of changes that never get taken into account. Mm-hmm. So the domino changes are a new decision-making structure that needs to be in place, new processes that link it together, uh, new incentives within the organization. How do we align financial and reward incentives to the new behavior? And then you've got the talent recruiting side of the equation that you have to add to, and then you have the environmental side they have to meet. And so we tend, companies tend to be really good at one piece of that. And so that leaves all the other pieces at, at at odds or misaligned with the strategy you're trying to create. So you really have to come in with that, what we call that systems approach, culture approach, leadership approach, people approach to the problem simultaneously.
1: And Thank you. What, thank you. What is your vision for creating a thriving, diverse, inclusive workplace?
0: my vision for that? Well, uh, it's an interesting question uh, because we looked at in the book, do we start with leadership or do we work more in grassroots? What we came away with, particularly with the wellness challenge, is that leadership is too fickle from the most, you know, you need highly dedicated, committed, uh, persistent leadership that walks the talk Mm -hmm. And models the behavior. Okay. We all know that. However, when you look at the companies that we all work with, we, you know, we're lucky to have two or three where the leadership is engaged, involved, and hasn't handed it off. So now what do we do? So we have what we call the domino nudge theory in the book. And starting with the low hanging fruit, shift the environment, you know, do the inexpensive things where you don't have to. Uh, get budget approval, create coalitions of people who value wellness, and get those coalitions inside to begin doing things departmentally, and beginning to create, you know, a, a groundswell internally around these things, uh, and then move it up the chain that way, and then the kind of concentric circles of in- involvement. We have a chapter in the book, The Healthy Workplace Nudge, where we talk about uh I think her name's Emily in the book, who started a grassroots effort to bring change uh to an organization that was not uh did not have what we call a healthy culture. Mm-hmm. Ideally if you've got a leader like uh Bob Chapman at Barry Waymiller or Charlie Kim at Next Jump, uh you know that's kind of the holy grail. That's what mm-hmm. you want to strive for. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I tend to be a realist in this. I don't go in, you know, promoting, hey, we're going to do this and leadership, you know, and it requires lots of leadership buy-in and huge budget numbers. It, that's It's just not going to happen with most companies.
2: True. Mm-hmm. Sure. So there are small things that people can do. Yes. And even from a thank grassroots goodness. level.
0: Yeah, thank goodness, right.
2: Yeah. Do you have a question that you'd like to ask Vivian and I?
0: So from the people that you have been talking to, uh, two, two questions. One, what do you hear consistently is kind of the huge, the big constraint for organizations in the near future? Uh, and what keeps those organizations up at night? And two, what do you see as kind of, a, a, an early, kind of an early adopter, uh, a promising, uh, new trend coming down the line that you think is going to gain, gain more more momentum.
1: Wow, those are a lot of questions in one, but I'll try to answer my part. What I see is that companies are trying to do their best to address the war for talent uh, because it's uh, it's eating up their numbers. And another thing that uh, when I look at the guest speakers that we have spoken, they all mention culture, which makes it a, a, high, a, a hot topic mm. uh, for the conversations that we're having. And um, there's a lot to learn from culture. I used to, I didn't, in the Netherlands, we don't have that emphasis on um, and the, the culture of an organization. And recently uh, we've become more aware of it. And regarding the future, I have to park that one. Mary-Jane, I'm handing it over to you. <laughs> okay, okay.
2: And uh, my first thought uh, to the first part of the question was similar to Vivian's, the, the war for talent, uh, that there's more of a focus on, okay, what's happening and how can we uh, prevent the revolving door uh, syndrome? Uh, so I think that there is there is that element. The The other that I think... Uh, it stays prevalent, relevant is, uh, the work-life integration. Mm-hmm. I don't want to call it work-life balance, but work-life integration, or as I heard, one of the guest speakers at the Wilcoa, uh summit this week, uh, I can't think of Brian's last name, but, uh, I think he was the one who mentioned work-life wisdom. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. And, uh, so I, I really, um, th- those are the, the two areas that I think are going to have a lot of attention in, in, in and have now the attention. And as Vivian mentioned, culture, yes, but it's so from what I've heard, it's so hard and the chances of success are not great. And so if we can find ways to help support organizations as you're doing in terms of in terms of uh moving the culture in the right direction then then Rex, uh, that that will make for big improvements here in what people are experiencing in the workplace
1: and also regarding the future because I I can only talk about what we see or what I see in the Netherlands um one of the things that is becoming big is having uh, an organization having a well business a well building standard certification where um where people can see from the outside that a company or an organization is taking better care of them. And, uh, that's also one of the reasons why I started become curious about doing well, which is a very compressive, uh, study, but I see well as a Trojan horse for myself oh. for, for the, Love it for coming or advocating workplace wellness. It's a Trojan horse for me mm-hmm. to it. get you
2: in the door. Yeah. get you in the door so that then you can start making additional moves and and yeah. and change. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, and there is a <laughs> behavior element too. Well, as well.
2: Mm-hmm. true. And maybe maybe it's handy just. Now, and maybe as a closing last uh, last one minute or so, Vivian mm-hmm. and Rex, can you explain what the well building standard is because that was something totally new to me yeah till i rex till I started researching for this interview?
0: Yes, so uh the well building standard represents the first time that building science and medical science have converged. To create a framework for how do we live happier and healthier together. Okay. And so it looks at a couple components. Uh, it looks at, of course, the environmental components, but it also looks at behavioral components as well. And and so it breaks out uh, design elements and interventions and in all of the different categories it can be food, air, water, uh, ergonomics and movement uh behavior. One of the things they learned in the green movement in the in with the USGBC is that about 50% of the building's environmental footprint and performance was behavior, uh, attributed to behavior. So they built that into the well standard on the front end. Uh, okay. So so it's a great framework. The manual is free online and uh whether you're going for certification or not, it should be in the hands of all the key stakeholders because there's so many areas that we just don't know because we're not building experts. You know, we're not uh, MEPs. We're not environmental uh, uh, scientists and, and engineers that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's in the it's in there for you to, to gain hold of.
2: OK, thank you for that. And we'll include a URL. Vivian, let's do that in in our uh, on our webpage page uh, for this episode also. Rex, thank you, you for welcome. sharing. This was a lot so, of fun. tips and, and and workplace well-being nudges, uh, sustainable health strategies. My God, this has been a a really a wealth of information.
0: I thank you. Yes, you're welcome. I hope we it was, can it,
1: it was like that we were having a webinar or a live performance because you have so much to share. I even reading through your book, I know it, it's a bit challenging for me to read it as a workplace wellness advocate, but you you shared so many good things that I'm using, that I'm interpreting right now, and I would say keep on the good work.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. And thank you for the opportunity.
1: You're welcome. You're welcome. To the listeners. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please address them or share them with us or send us a a message. And thank you for listening. Up till next time. Bye. Bye. Bye bye.
0: Go to Thrive Podcast. Empower people to be happy before, during and after work.